All right, I am so glad that you are here this, um, this weekend. We are going to have a great time together. I hope that by the end of the weekend, your heart feels like mine does right now, because I have spent the last four days, all that I've been studying, all I've been thinking about, all I've been reading about, all I've been writing about is the Song of Solomon. And I've got to tell you, my heart is full of love for the Bible. My heart is love in, uh, full of love for my wife. And my heart is full of love with Jesus. And I hope that's what happens to you by Monday at noon. Or uh, Sunday at noon, rather. So. All right? So we're going to have a great time together. How many of you have studied in depth the book of Song of Solomon? Let me see your hand. <laughs> I love it! Hardly four of you. Awesome. Okay. That is amazingly cool, and we're going to have a great time together. Some of you came this weekend, and you're like, ugh, Song of Solomon. It's going to be awkward. Navel like a goblet, seriously. You know, hair like a flock of goats. You know, things like that. Um, so I just want to set you at ease that um, we're going to have a great time. This is a beautiful book. It um, tells us a lot about marriage. It presents a beautiful ideal of what marriage is, and it also points us to uh, the beautiful relationship between Christ and his church. And so we're going to have a great time together. Yes, in the context of our um, study of this book, um, there will be uh, plenty of discussion regarding passion, regarding sexuality, and I hope to be able to help reframe some things um, in your minds and hearts. For some of you, some of the things I'm going to talk about this weekend are not new at all. And for others of you, well, I'm going to give you some categories that are just going to be like, wow, I had no idea the Bible like thought that way about marriage and human sexuality. So, um, we have some question cards. There, uh, as you leave the first session in the, in the break, you'll have an opportunity to grab a, a index card, and there's a, a box in the back. And um, one of the things I'd like to be able to do is just to have uh, a question and answer time, probably um, tomorrow evening, where I just kind of go through a number of questions and just handle what are you wondering about. You, you happy to put your name down or not, whatever. Um, and um, we'll have a good time just um, trying to help you understand um, some of the answers to your questions. Now, I don't know what your understanding is of the Book of Solomon, Song of Solomon, or um, how much you understand about it, but when I was in high school growing up, there was a particular video that came out by uh, Mark Lowry that helps to give a good overview of what the Book of Song of Solomon is all about. And so I'm going to go ahead and show you this video because this will set up my, my, my sermon series really, really well. All right, Scotty, roll it. At last I found a God of Christian courtship. Now I can be a ladies man of God. I knew I'd find my answer in the Solomon. 
regarding your passion. I'm aiming, and this book aims, to get to the passion part of your soul. And my aim is that we study the book of Song of Solomon so that your passion for your spouse, your passion for marriage, and your passion for Jesus are all raised to new heights. So, I hope that by the end of this weekend, you will love your spouse more, you'll love the idea of marriage more, you'll love the beauty of sexuality more, and you will love Jesus more, that you will find yourself thinking, thank you, Jesus, marriage was your idea. And it's awesome. It's just awesome. So my aim is to fulfill the mission statement of our church, igniting a passion to follow Jesus. So I want to ignite a passion in your heart for marriage results in igniting a passion to follow Jesus. So what I want you to be doing as we're going through this book, I want you to be thinking about, and maybe even writing down somewhere, maybe take a blank page and your um, uh, booklet that you have, or a journal, or maybe a spot on your phone, and just to pause as you're going through this weekend to be able to pray and to be able to think creatively about what specific steps could you take in light of this weekend to elevate your affections. Now, you've done the first thing, which is you got here, and that's wonderful. I, I'm so glad that you're here, because taking time out like this, it's, it's going to be helpful. You're going to meet some other people. You're going to make some friends here that you haven't made before. You're going to be able to talk about your marriage. You're going to be able to think about some things that you wouldn't normally think about. My guess is none of you are going to stay home tonight and read Song of Solomon. And it, so what we're going to do over this weekend is, is we're going to spend some time just thinking about what it means for marriage to be a beautiful picture of Christ's relationship to the church. So I have affection goals. That's my primary aim. It is to elevate your affections. I want you to know this book. I hope that over the course of this weekend, you'll know your spouse better. I hope you'll know where you can grow. And I hope you will have a greater understanding of what it means to love Jesus. So Regardless of how long you've been married, there is a great opportunity for all of us to grow. Whether you're married four months, those two couples, right? Four months or 55, three years. You were like 14 when you got married. 21, okay, that's legal, that's good. <laughs> no matter what, um, what season of life you're in, there are things to grow in in the context of marriage. So without writing it down yet, let me ask you a question. As you come to this weekend, what two words would describe where your marriage is right now? 
what two words, maybe they're both good words, maybe they're both honest, hard words, but what two words would describe where your marriage is right now? And what I would challenge you to do is sometime in the next 48 to 72 hours, as a husband and wife, just to ask your spouse, what, what were your two words? And then just realize where the two of you are. So if you're newly married, we're really glad you're here. You have all of the passion and all of the ignorance as to what marriage is. And we're really glad you're here. If you have young, how many of you have, how many have young children at home, a number of kids under the age of, let's say, seven? All right, good. You're the exhausted group. You're just, you're grateful you got here and somebody was crazy enough to take your kids. You're in survival mode. Typically in this age, you have like work. There's no money to do anything. And you just, you barely made it here. We're grateful that you're here. How many of you have uh, school-aged children, 7 to 13? You're in that zone. We see your hands. Okay, great. So you're figuring out that all of the problems that you thought were going to happen when they were young actually are happening now, right? And, and you're finding out that the difficulty of what it means to try and, and uh, navigate uh, their <coughs> sinful hearts. How many of teenagers, uh, mostly, 13 years and above? Let me see your hands. Okay, very good. You're trying to figure out um, how to become not just the parent, but the influencer. How many of you have launched, um, how many have all college kids? No, nobody in uh, high school or below anymore, all college kids? Okay. How about all college kids and above? Let me see that age group. Okay, very good. And then how many of you are grandparents? Let me see your hands. Okay, well, good. There's a good number of you. Very good. The, the point is that through each stage of marriage, um, life changes. Uh, communication changes. Um, sex changes. Parenting changes. And, and through each one of those seasons of life, it's important to figure out, so how does the book of Song of Solomon relate to this? So when we got uh, married, Sarah and I took the, um, the five love languages test. How many of you have taken that test? You know, there's a number of love languages like um, words of affirmation, physical touch, time, acts of service, things of that sort. And um, when we took that test, uh, Sarah had very specific love languages. And so I was like, this is awesome. She told me exactly what I should do in order to show her that I loved her. So I started doing those things, doing those things, doing those things. We had children. We had twins at once. And that just rocked our world, um, changed everything in a good and not so good way. And then um, I noticed that the things that I was doing weren't having the same effect that they did when we first got married. And so I sat down with her one time and said, hey, honey, I, I've got to talk about something here. Like, like the things that, we're, that I'm doing for you, like, it used to make you all, like, like really happy, and it seems like they're not really doing it anymore. She's like, yeah, they're not. <laughs> well, what in the world? I, I'd like to know that information. And she's like, yeah, well, my love languages have changed. And I'm like, well, time out, time out, time out, time out. We have premarital counseling. You tell me what your love languages are. You can't change your love languages. <laughs> She's like, I sure can. They're my love languages. I can change them when I want. I'm like, not without written notice, you can't. <laughs> and I was like, so what are they? And so she told me what they, they had changed dramatically with the advent of children. And we look back at our lives now. I've been married almost 23 years. And we can see the different seasons of life. There's different dynamics that are in play through every different season of life. And what I want to help you to see that no matter what season of life you're in, this book, Song of Solomon, is a beautiful book 
that helps to fan into flame the affections that God's designed for a husband and wife to have for one another, no matter what season of life you're in. Now, let me give you a couple ways to understand this book. Let me help you understand some big picture things about this book, or you won't really know how to read it. You need to understand the Book of Song of Solomon is a love song. So it's poetry. So as a result, it's full of emotion, it's full of passion, and at times it's even full of erotic material. What's great about this book is I could hand this book to Savannah, our 10-year-old daughter, she could read it, and she'd be like, oh, that's nice. And I'd hand it to my 19-year-old sons, and they'd be like, oh, this is a little spicy, right? And so this, this book has things in it, and you'll be like, yeah, I know, we're not, we're not talking about palm trees here, man, we're talking about something else, right? And so you're going you're gonna to see some things in the context of this. And yet, it's also important to know that what this book is driving at is for us to be able to see that, that God has made us both intellectual, emotional, relational, and sexual beings. I want you to know that not everything about this weekend is all going to center around sex or sexuality. And yet, at the same time, I want you to understand that this book is in the Bible for a reason, and there are things in here that are really important for us to unpack. And what happens is the Song of Solomon takes these intellectual categories and these passionate categories and these emotional categories and even these erotic categories and pulls them all together in order to show us what the beauty of marriage is supposed to be. So... There's a couple ways in history that this book has been interpreted. It has been interpreted as an allegory of God's love for Israel. So John Calvin and the Puritans, that's what they thought the book of Song of Solomon was all about. It's just about God's love for Israel. Secondly, people have thought it was just an allegory of Christ's love for his church. Third, some have seen it as a love poem that simply is a biblical sex manual. And fourth, and this is my interpretation of it, this is a beautiful love poem about romantic love that points to something more. So it's, this, it's, it's an allegory, yes, but it's not an allegory in and of itself. I think that Calvin and the Puritans, they didn't know what to do with it. It is a, a book that identifies the beauty of what God has designed in marriage and what God has designed in sexuality, but that marriage and that sexuality is meant to be a portal to point to something beyond itself because marriage and sexuality are temporary. They are only a part of this created order, and in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't be married and there won't be sexuality. <laughs> We'll talk about that a little bit further, but just to give you a little teaser on this, it is the fact that there's something about the new heavens and the new earth that are so glorious that the most intimate and most personal and most deeply woven together relationship on earth, marriage, combined with the most deeply intimate and personal and powerful expression of that relationship, namely sexuality, do not exist in the new heavens and the new earth because there's something about the glory of Jesus that makes sexuality and marriage seem beautiful, but incomplete. So I want to elevate your affections for marriage. I want to elevate your affections for sexuality in marriage because they are not the end goal. And for you to, in the most beautiful, most wonderful, most 
enraptured moments of love and affection that you have for your spouse to realize this is nothing compared to what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. So, a little background. The book was written sometime during the reign of Solomon. We don't know if it was Solomon who wrote the book or if it was a book that was written in his honor. Part of the reason why we don't know if it was Solomon was because he's not the best example of marital fidelity. 700 wives and 300 concubines tends to make you question if he really understood the beauty of marital commitment. Some would suggest that to solve that problem that Solomon wrote it early in his life, Proverbs were written in the middle, and Ecclesiastes were written at the end. Maybe. There, there are three main characters in the Song of Solomon. There's a man, there's a woman, and there's a chorus of girls. So when you look at your Bible, if you have it open, you'll notice at least my translation has like sections. She, chapter one, she, others, she, and he. And so you need to think of this sort of like... Um, uh, a little bit like a Greek drama, or think of it like an opera. So the, imagine music that's rolling, and there's a woman that steps out, and she sings the first part in, in chapter 1. So let me just, just read it to you. Imagine my voice is a little higher, and it says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Draw me after you. Let us run together. The king has brought me into his chamber. So that's so she, and then it switches to others. So imagine a chorus of girls that step out. Like these, these four girls, they step out and they say together, We exalt and rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than wine. Rightly do they love you. And then they go to the backstage, and then she comes back out again. You getting this? Yeah. You follow me? I thought about actually doing this with you, but it was a little bit too awkward. So then she says, I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keepers of the vineyard. My own vineyard I have not kept. Tell me, you whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon. For why should I be like one who veils herself beside the flock of your companions? So she concludes, and then the man comes on the scene. Dun, 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 dun. He says, if you do not know, most beautiful among women, follow the tracks of the flock and pasture your goats beside the shepherd tents. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. There we go. There's the first great comparison. He calls her a horse. <laughs> so husbands, look at your wife and say, you're a horse. No one did that. Okay. So, well, I'll explain that in a minute. A mare in Pharaoh's chariots are, that's, that's something, we'll talk about that in a minute. Then your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. Doesn't mean that she had like Christmas ornaments hanging down from her cheeks. Your neck with strings of pearls. And then these girls step out again. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. And then they step in the back and she steps out. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. My beloved to me is a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi. Can you hear the hallmark roll running now? <laughs> he steps forward. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. 
She steps forward. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. So you understand what's going on here? This is the introduction, and I'll explain what chapter, there's a lot that's going on here in chapter one. What you need to know is that this, this book is really a progression of a romantic story set in the context of an overall love song. And what I think it is, is a man and a woman, perhaps Solomon, looking back over their married life, and they're reflecting on the beauty of their young love, the beauty of the first consummation of their love, the beauty of their love after their first consummation of that love, and then what it means to grow old together. And they're looking through the lens of history with an idealistic view, a beautiful idealistic view of what marriage is all about. So this song is, is written from this perspective of this married couple looking back. I'm not suggesting at all that this book is a handbook for dating not suggesting that there are even things prior to the wedding day that I would recommend that a couple would use to say to one another. They're looking back towards what happened in their lives, reflecting what was going on in their hearts in order to be able to know the beauty and to communicate the beauty of what their marriage has meant to them. Let me give you an outline, and then I'll jump in with five observations. So if you have your Bible open, the first section really is chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 3 and verse 5. So that's, that's, and this is important, that's the first section, and in that first section, this man and woman affirm their love to one another. And so tonight we're going to look at chapter 1 and chapter 2, and then tomorrow I'm going to talk about the power of affirmation, and then... Tomorrow morning, talk about a biblical view of sexuality, and then we'll see where we go after that. Then in chapter 3 and verse 6, through chapter 4 and verse 16, really verse 15, rather, so 3.6 to 4.15 is the wedding processional. And then in chapter 4, verse 16, through chapter 5 and verse 1, they have the, the consummation of their marriage. And then in chapter 5 and verse 2, all the way to chapter 8 and verse 14, it is the affirmation of their love again. Now, you should have received somewhere in your packet a handout that looks like this. Let me just have you look at this. I'm going to cover all the technical stuff first so you can understand where we are in the book when we start to get into this study. Because you're going to be like, wait a minute, where are we in this book? So this is one proposed um, outline. Do you guys have this? Okay, good. All right. This is called a, um, a chiastic structure, which many times in, in biblical literature and in Hebrew poetry, what it does is it sort of, like, think of it like it builds to a mountain and then it goes down, or it builds to a point of climax and then it recesses. And so he, report, he reports the offering functions that way. And this is, I think, a really helpful and frankly, I, I think it's an accurate portrayal of the structure of what happens in the book of Song of Solomon. So... What this particular author did is take various words that appear throughout the book of Song of Solomon and show how there are, there's parallelism all the way up in the book leading to the pivot point in verse 16 and in chapter 5, 4, 16 and 5, 1 regarding the consummation of their marriage and then it, it, it retreats 
and affirms all the way to the very end. So this, this will be helpful as we walk through this book to kind of know, now where exactly are, are we in the study of Song of Solomon? So what's important to note in this book is there is a significant amount of emotion that's meant to be communicated as this couple sings this song to one another. Do you have a favorite song that you and your spouse have? Anybody want to offer, be bold enough to offer what their song is? Yeah. Okay, very good. Do you want to sing it? No? Okay, very good. Anybody else favorite song? Okay, When You Kiss Me by Shania Twain. Very good. Any other ones? Okay, very good. Any other one? Yeah, way in the back. <laughs> All right. When I said I do. Okay. I will be there. I will be there. Okay. All the way back. All right. All I need. So when we're going through this. If you don't have a song, just get one by the end of the weekend, okay? So just get Shania Twain's song or something like that, all right? Just find one. Like, oh, yeah, I like that one. When we're walking through this book, I want you to think of it as a book that really is the song of this couple. And they are singing it to one another. And they're using language that's meant to communicate meaning. And at the same time, you need to look through the words that they say to catch the symbolism and the beauty and the emotion of what they're trying to communicate. All right, let's start. Here's five observations on this book of the Bible, chapter one. Five observations about Song of Solomon and about marriage. The first is this, number one. Marriage is awesome. There is no more important relationship on earth than marriage. Would you agree with that? Would you agree that marriage is awesome? Because this is called, chapter 1, verse 1, the song of songs. This is just a song. This is the song of songs. And what is meant to be communicated here, it is the best of songs. In fact... In one particular season of history in Israel, this was one of five scrolls that was read annually at Passover. Yeah. So this song was elevated as an important, beautiful statement. It's interesting to note here that the best of songs, like the Song of Songs, is a song about marriage and a song about sexuality. The reason is, is because there is nothing on earth that is a more appropriate picture of the ultimate reality of the gospel and Jesus' relationship with his church. And later on tonight we'll talk about this in Ephesians where Paul says, and I'm speaking about the, this mystery of marriage, which is Christ and his church. So you know this, 
that when your marriage is working well, and you're loving one another, you're understanding one another, you're in sync together, you're working hard in parenting your children, you're on the same page financially, you can travel in the car and there's silence and it's not a problem, or you can have a conversation and it all makes sense, or there's conflict and it resolves in 4.3 seconds, and you have all these things work out. You know in that moment, marriage is the most beautiful relationship ever. It's awesome. And there is nothing better to be linked to somebody else, to have a one flesh union to them, to be known, to be naked emotionally, to be naked physically, to be able to know that someone loves you despite what they know about you and you're accepted and they're not going to leave you. I mean, there, there's nothing more glory. This is the song of songs. And you also know the reverse is true. There's nothing more painful when marriage begins to tank. When you begin to use the things that you know to turn the knife of your own self-centeredness. When sexuality isn't a way to express love, but it's a way to grab a hold of power or my own needs and desires. When parenting is difficult because we're on the very different page. So... What I want to do this weekend is try and work really hard because I, I think marriage can be and should be the most glorious relationship in all of the earth, but I've also seen way too many marriages that are in really difficult shape. And that may be your marriage coming this weekend. This may be, you may have been like, look, this is the last thing we're going to try. And I'm, I'm so glad you're here, and I hope that you'll take some steps this weekend to kind of bring back the oneness and the unity that both you and your spouse, somewhere you crave. There has to have been some point in your relationship when it was better than what it is right now. There had to be a reason. You got married for a reason. There was something about the two of you that God brought you together. And my hope is that maybe this weekend you'll be able to figure that out and the Lord will help you in a new and significant way. And even if your marriage is cruising and things are going really well, it can always be improved. And there are things that can be even better. So in chapters 1 and 2, we have a bride and groom who are anticipating their wedding and their life together, and chapter 1 really serves as an introduction to their passion for one another. So point number 1, first observation is this, marriage is awesome. Point number 2 is this, marriage not only is awesome, but it is the best of all human relationships. Marriage is awesome. Marriage is the best of all human relationships. Let's look at verse 2. She begins and says, Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Really, this is could be, this verse could be a summary for the entire book because these, the, the kiss that she refers to refers to the physicality of their love. And then she says that the physicality of their love is better than wine. Why wine? Well, because wine is intoxicating. If used to excess, it can make you lightheaded. It can make you happy. It can make you giddy. It can make you act stupid. It can make you spend money on things you shouldn't spend money on. Make you say things that are there, but you normally don't say. And essentially what she's saying is that the love that she has for this man is powerful and those emotions are so incredibly strong. So I wonder, you come to this marriage retreat, is, if you could kind of do a, 
a power reading in terms of the strength of emotions that you feel for your spouse? Where, where is that right now? And, and, and what would it take to maybe move it the, the, the right direction? Maybe part of coming this, this weekend was the intention of trying to rekindle some, some passion and desire in your relationship. Some of you may have come just because your spouse said we're going to go. So you're here sort of like, well, yeah, go ahead and try and convince me that this book is important and relevant. I hope what happens is that the Spirit of God will use what's in here to give you a vision of what could be or maybe what used to be and for you to be brought along and say, you know what, it doesn't have to be this way anymore. Like, I want it, I want it back the way that it used to be, where we were in sync with one another, in love with one another. We said kind words, and, and we knew what one another meant. And there's just been too many challenges and too many pains that have gone by, too many unresolved conflicts. Let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. And then verse 3, your anointing oils are fragrant. She loves the smell of her man. Anointing oils were used for special moments. She says, your name is oil poured out. Why does she say that? Because what she means here is that she loves everything about the man. She has great respect for him. She loves his name. It's hard to love. It's hard to make love to someone who you don't respect. Somebody who you're either embarrassed by or not proud to be with. She says, your anointing oils are fragrant. Your name is poured, is oil poured out. Therefore, virgins love you. Verse 4, draw me after you and let us run. She has this, this strong longing for him. This, this longing and this desire, draw me after you, let us run. The king has brought me into his chambers. So, so, so this will be a theme that will emerge all throughout the song. And again, chapter 1 is simply introductory, something I want you to really think about, and it's this. The idea is let us, let us run together, draw me after you. The idea is something that's happening in chapter 1 where this woman and this man are pursuing one another. So... How have you pursued your spouse in the last week and a half? How are you demonstrating that you are still madly in love with your mate? Remember all the things you did when you were trying to woo one another to say yes to marriage? I mean, some of you, like me, you, you drive hours just to be able to see one another. You, you, you plan a date like it was a military operation. You do all kinds of research, and, and now it's like, what do you want to do? I don't know. What do you want to do? A little movie? All right. Let's go movie. All right. And that's a date, right? How did that happen? How did that happen? I mean, it used to be you were like, here's what we're going to do. And you like fold out a scroll. It's all got good smelly things on it. There's a rose. And, and then you saw the plan. Ladies, you're like, oh, that's wonderful, right? Even though it wasn't. And you're like, I love boxing. You know, and that's going to be fun, you know. How are you pursuing your mate? Has, has, your, has the loves of your mate become your loves? I used this illustration before, but some of you at church, but some of you, the, the, the strangest thing has happened to you, men, you now walk by like, oh, crate and barrel. Mm. Bed, Bath, and Beyond. 
And there's a strange attraction now that you have to go into the stores because after all these years, you've learned that that store is where your wife's love and affection is. And so you see things in there. And you're like, honey, look at this. This was great in the corner. And 30 years ago, if your guys in your fraternity had heard you saying that, you'd be kicked out just like that. And yet something's happened inside your soul. Your wife's loves have become your love and your affections. But if we're honest, something happens over time where... We, we, we begin to not allow the passionate pursuit of one another to become forefront in our thinking. She dreams of running with him. She longs to be a part of his house, and she longs to be a part of his bedroom. So, number one, marriage is awesome. Number two, marriage is the best of all human relationships. Number three, Marriage should be celebrated by others. It's really interesting to me that right away, these girls show up. So right, right, right at the very beginning, and it's not just a stylistic thing. These girls show up, and they, they sing this chorus. We will exalt over you. We will rejoice in you. We will extol your love more than mine, more than wine. Rightly do they love you. We have this introduction of these chorus girls, these, these daughters of Jerusalem. And what they're doing in this moment is they are, they are praising the idea of marriage and they serve also to affirm the worthiness of this man. So these other girls are also affirming the beauty of marriage. Here's what a really good marriage does. A really good marriage makes other people look at marriage and say, I love marriage too, and I don't even have a marriage. So you grew up in a home like that. You knew your mom and dad loved each other. You saw they treated one another. And it's just like you, you, you were hoping that you could have the kind of relationship that your parents had. Some of you have no idea what that's like. You lived in a, a marital no-man's land. You've had no examples. And you know what the challenge for you is? The challenge for you is to break the negative cycle of the marriage decline that's been all around you. And you can provide a beautiful example of marriage for your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren. You need to imagine what a party looks like on your 60th wedding anniversary with all your little grandbabies around you and you and your wife going, Can you believe it? Here we are. And realize that you've been able to demonstrate the beauty of godly, faithful, of a godly and faithful marriage. These, these young girls are swooning over the beauty of the marriage. And it, it's right that it's girls, right? That you can't be a bunch of boys doing this. That wouldn't make any sense. Now, having a little girl, I understand this. I took Savannah to a wedding, and she was just, I mean, enamored. Where's the bride? Where's the bride? There's this romantic thing just kind of built into the heart of a, of a, of a girl. So that's why we have these girls here. In fact, one time we were at uh, Disney World about three years ago or so, and they had this float and parade thing that happens, and Prince Charming was on a, on a float. And he came by, and Savannah was standing right in front of me, and Prince Charming actually came, uh, took a step towards her, and he had the, uh, the silver or the, the glass slipper. Is that what it is? Is that right? Okay. All right. He had the, the, the glass slipper, and he looked down at Savannah, and he held out the slipper, and he said, is this yours? No. And Savannah was like, no. <laughs> and she, like, froze. And she didn't, she didn't move, and I looked down, and then she turned around, she's like, <laughs> you know. A little boy would have been like, no, I don't wear slippers, you know. Right? So, so there's girls here for a reason. We exalt in you. We rejoice in you. They're doing it together as most girls do things together, like 
go to the bathroom together, take their purses together. So they're, what they're doing is they're doing this together, and they're going to make love all the more attractive because they're going to extol the beauties of love and marriage. And I hope that your marriage can be an emblem, a symbol, and a beautiful portrait of what marriage should be in the world. Because listen, friends, the world needs to see really good, healthy marriages. The world has had plenty of examples of bad marriages, and Plenty of examples of bad Christian marriages, and it's a tragedy when the divorce rate is the same inside the church as it is outside of the church. And I'm just asking you pastorally, please use this weekend to build a good marriage. Use this weekend to build a passionate marriage so that I can point young married couples your direction and say, this is what the Bible says, and go check out these folks and do what they do, because they got a great marriage. They're not perfect people, but they haven't figured out. So marriage should be celebrated by others. Number four, marriage is a refuge from insecurity. Marriage is a refuge from insecurity. Look at verse five. I am very dark but lovely, O daughters of Jerusalem, like the tents of Kedar, like the curtains of Solomon. Do not gaze at me because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. So what's happening here is the bride talks about her appearance, and she's, she's embarrassed about her appearance. The, the reason is, is that beautiful women in the ancient Near East weren't tan. They were fair-skinned. Because to be tan meant that you worked outside and you were part of the common class. And so she has dark skin because she's a common laborer. That's apparently who she is. She's not worthy in rank for the love of this shepherd or this prince or this king who's going to come. And yet she says, do not gaze at me, verse 6, because I am dark, because the sun has looked upon me. My mother's sons were angry with me. They made me keeper of the vineyards. So she's been sent out into the fields to take care of the vineyards, but my own vineyard I have not kept, meaning like I, I've neglected even my, my things that I'm responsible for because my family has treated me in such a way. So she is beautiful, as you'll see when we walk through this book, and yet what's very interesting is right here from the very beginning, something surfaces that's going to follow all the way through the book, which is there's a fundamental insecurity that she's bringing into this relationship. So let me just ask you women, does, does that resonate with you? You know, it's not uncommon for men just so you know, it's not uncommon for a woman to walk into the room and assess who's the prettiest, most attractive woman in the room. How do I measure up? How, how does my beauty compare to this person's beauty? How does my body and the parts of my body compare to this person? So right from the beginning, and you're going to see this over in, in the book of Song of Solomon, there is a, there's a fundamental insecurity that's in her, and we're going to see this on the other side. There's an insecurity in his part that we'll talk about from a male perspective. And the beautiful thing is this that marriage can actually be a refuge from that latent insecurity in women and the latent insecurity in men. Marriage at its best is a husband and wife who come in their insecurity and find security in one another and their ultimate security in the person and work of Jesus. 
Verse 7, she longs to be where her man is. He wants to be her, she wants him to be her soulmate. She says, tell me whom my soul loves, where you pasture your flock, where you make it lie down at noon, for why should I be like one who veils herself? She, she wants to, to be able to find him, wants to be one who's, who's known openly. She wants to be known as his wife. She doesn't want to have to veil herself and be ashamed. If to veil yourself like that would have been a marker that you were a prostitute. Instead, she wants to unveil herself and say, I belong to that man. And for him to say, that's my wife. She wants to belong. So... Again, we're going to talk about this, but then just, just to cue you in, I want you to understand how deep this, this physical insecurity thing can rest in the heart of your wife. And I might add that with the advent of widespread pornography, airbrushed images of the female body, surgical means to make a woman's body unusually proportioned, it has a deeply negative effect on women, and this ambient sexuality creates an ambient sense of insecurity. You might just want to ask your wife if what I said is true. If she says no, then great. If she says yes, ask her why. Help me understand this. Because what this book is going to do is to set the insecurity at rest in a accepting, loving, beautiful, I think you're amazing. In fact, all of the funny things that Mark Lowry said that are in the book of Song of Solomon, they relate to this very issue. As body part after body part after body part after body part, he is going to praise and extol and honor. He's going to make much of her beauty. And then she's going to say some things as well. But from the very beginning, we see this latent insecurity that is there. So part of the goal of this weekend is for you to really understand one another about some of these insecurities and also, men in particular, for you to really value the beauty of your wife and for the two of you to see what true beauty really is. Because all day long you are inundated with what is truly beautiful and it isn't ultimately lovely. As we'll see, the Song of Solomon is a passionate book. It's an erotic book, but not in the physical sense alone. What it does is it elevates the entire person, it elevates the entire marriage as something that is supremely attractive. Verse 8, look at what he does. He says, If you do not know, O most beautiful among women, women follow the tracks of the flock, and pasture your young goats beside the shepherd's tents. So he identifies where he can be found, but he calls her, O oh, most beautiful among women. He lavishes her with praise and identifies where he can be found. Fifth and finally, fifth observation is that marriage is then a place for affirmation. In verses 19 to 17, we're going to see what is frequently found throughout the book, which is admiration through value comparison. So he's going to compare her, and she's going to pick, compare him to things that are supremely valuable. So that's what we have in verse 9. I compare you, my love, to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments. 
Your neck is like a string of pearls. All of these are incredibly lovely and incredibly valuable. He's saying, in effect, that this woman is lovely, that she is to be praised, and she is decorated with unbelievable loveliness. Verse 12, or verse 11, the, the girls show up again. We will make for you ornaments of gold studded with silver. They're, 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 um, they're creating a greater spotlight on this compliment and this beauty. Verse 12, the woman then responds to his affirmation with her own, communicating her affection for him. And so notice what happens here in verse 12. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Nard is an expensive fragrance with a sexual context. This is considered a love potion. So notice what happens. And again, we're going to see this over and over. He praises her beauty. She affirms his sexual desirability. That's the key to the book. He affirms how lovely she is. She affirms how much she wants him. Why? Because at the core of a woman is an insecurity regarding how she looks, and at the core of a man is an insecurity as to whether or not he's really desirable. The man is compared to a pouch of aromic resin. It says, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi, the place of, um, of refreshment in the midst of a dry desert. The man compliments her again in verse 15. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. She returns the praise. Behold, you are beautiful. It's sort of like, you're beautiful. No, you're beautiful. No, you're beautiful. No, you're beautiful. And that's the idea of this thing that's going back and forth. No, you're awesome. No, you're awesome. No, you're great. No, you're great. And the idea is back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And tell me if you haven't had that experience a few times in your marriage where you are so enamored with one another that you're praising one another and you're like, no, 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 no. You're the better one. No, 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 no. You're the better but what happens over time is your spouse says, you're great. And you're like, that's right. You're really lucky you married me. That's not in the book. Behold, you are lovely. You are beautiful, my love. Verse 16, behold, you are beautiful, my beloved. Truly delightful. Our couch is green. The beams of our house are cedar. Our rafters are pine. Let me ask you some questions before we take a break. Remember those words that I asked you to think about that describe your marriage? Go back to those words again. Do you like the words that you chose? Would you, would you, would you, what words would you want to have? And, and, and what would it take? What could you do to help those other words become a reality in your marriage? Honestly, if I were to ask your children about your marriage, what would they say? Would they say, Mom and Dad fight all the time? If I was to say, what, 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 what's your relationship like with your mom and dad? Would, would your kids say, oh, yeah, they're crazy about each other? Do your kids know that you go out on dates? Do your kids know that, you, that the two of you are more important than them? I mean, say it in the right way. <laughs> about, I don't know, a year or so ago, Sarah and I... She called me when I was at church on a Sunday and said, hey, the kids are at home. How about you and I just go out to lunch? I'm like, yes. Awesome. 
So we went to El Rodeo, chips and salsa, Diet Coke. It was a great Sunday afternoon. Came in the door. The kids were like, where have you been? I was like, I went to, I went to El Rodeo with your mom. They're like, well, that's not fair. I thought, not fair? You live in my house, you eat my food, drink, you, 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 you drive my cars, I pay your insurance, I pay your school bill. Like, you came from your mother's loins. You tell me this isn't fair? Like, what are you talking about? It's not fair. Let me tell you what's not fair. You're not fair, right? You're sucking all the life out of this home. You don't make any money, and you're all, you're all expensive. In fact, some people tell me it cost me a million dollars before you... And so, I didn't say all that, but I wanted to. So, this is an important moment when they walk in and I'm like, yeah, I'm taking your mom out to lunch. You know why? Because she's more important than you. I love you, but we love each other. And guess what? We like spending time together without all of you around. So say that in the right way, but say it. Men, do you affirm your wife's beauty and her attractiveness? If I was to ask your wife, does, does your husband affirm you're beautiful? Would, would your wife say yes? Wife, wives, are you affirming your husband's sexual desirability? He may not um, deserve your desire in your mind, but does Jesus deserve the honor of you desiring someone who's not perfect? Are there pockets of harshness, negativity, and a lack of affirmation in the context of your relationship? How long has it been since you planned an evening together that felt like something you used to do when you were young and in love? And then finally, if there was one step that you could take this weekend, just one thing that you could do to help your marriage, do you have any idea what that would be? Because my hope, my prayer, is that you won't do a hundred things. You'll just do one different thing. Maybe it's to have a conversation about some of the things we talked about even here, about the insecurity thing, about the attraction thing, about, hey, do I spend enough time investing in our marriage? Do, or, do I communicate to you, honey, that, that, I'm, that you're desirable to me? Do you, do you know that I think you're beautiful? Do I say that enough? Do I say that the right way? Do you want to hear your hair is like a flock of goats? I mean, what, what do you want me to? How do, what do you? How do you want me to to, to to say that? I hope that this weekend can be a time where you can just have some really good conversations because this, friends, is the song of songs. Because marriage is the relationship of all relationships. It is the thing that points to Christ, and it is the environment in which the glory of God in the gospel through the work of Christ becomes most evidently clear when two broken people are able to love one another in their brokenness and make something special in a chaotic world where marriage is no longer special and sexuality is no longer sacred. And so I'm asking you for the sake of the church and for the sake of the gospel, please make marriage work. Make it work. Let God help you to make it work and let your passion for marriage, your passion for the Bible, and the passion for Jesus, let it soar over the next couple of days. Let's pray. Father, we ask you now to give us grace to understand this book and how we might grow in our understanding of what you want us to be as husbands and wives. 
Forgive us for the shortcomings that we have that we bring into this gathering, and we pray that you would um, give us wisdom to know how to apply this book in our lives. Give us peace where we feel tension. Give us comfort where we feel a little awkward. And give us hope where we feel a bit of despair. We thank you that you know all about our marriages. You brought us together as husbands and wives. You've made no mistake. And we can trust you that somehow, some way, you can shine through us in a new way. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.